Hello and welcome to episode one of the Sick Esports Podcast, a weekly podcast about the business of esports and the esports business. This week, the 28th of January, 2023, we talk about Overwatch teams suing Activision Blizzard and what could possibly get dug up in the collective bargaining agreement as YouTube numbers, how the game was balanced, and the numbers that were originally pitched to teams could all be on the table. It's an Overwatch League special as the game is shut down in China ahead of their upcoming World Cup. But after that, we talk FIFA as the simulation of football draws real viewership in London. Our game of the week comes from the LCK, where we also talk about how the LCK is still the best esports league in the world, numbers-wise, and also how their product is presented. I'm Thomas James, joined by Matthew Covey-Samuelson, and all of that is after this. Okay, Covey, uh, I think we get to start with the juicy stuff. We could barely contain ourselves as we were beginning to set up for today's recording. Uh, People Make Games, who've done some incredible work. They are a group of former Game Informer journalists and reporters who left Game Informer, started their own outlet, uh, and it's on YouTube. It's People Make Games. I would highly recommend there'll be a link in the show notes. I would highly recommend you go watch the video we're about to talk about. They did an in-depth deep dive on Valve Studios, uh, and it's titled Working at Valve, A Fearless Adventure, or Lord of the Flies, and it is one of the most incredible pieces of journalism they've done. You know that things are interesting when you have internal employee polling where the satisfaction rate is 3%, and that seems like it. Like there were so many polls they shared where the internal satisfaction was like under 10%, and it was just like, I mean, first off, that blew me away. But also, yeah, I mean, it is wild. Like, the hours, what is required of these employees, like, it, it's just a crazy video. Yeah, and so the video starts with the employee handbook, which is, like, famous. I don't know about you. Maybe this is just because I played Counter-Strike as a kid. But I feel like everyone has been, has like been on Reddit and had someone explain that at Valve, you know, all the desks are on wheels. And you can roll the desks over to places and work on whatever you want. Because that's like a famous bit of Valve mm-hmm. mythos that they put out. So the video starts there, and then they get kind of unprecedented access to this studio, the studio that makes uh, Counter-Strike and Dota 2, both of which are huge esports games, but also the studio that makes Steam, that runs the biggest marketplace for video games. A lot of the videos based on, I think it was like 16 former employees and like in-depth interviews that they were able to pick like all this information up and kind of make what is a 45-minute piece. It's a lot of inside info and it really lends uh, quite the lens into what goes on behind the scenes at Valve. And it, it puts kind of a shader over what we were talking about last week. We were talking about how Riot are over here working really hard on PR, and it's actually doing them some some harm sometimes because it sets such an impossibly high standard for communication and transparency. And Valve are over here. We painted them as almost like laconic, like Clint Eastwood. It turns out that's because inside Valve, it's basically anarchy and nobody's in charge, uh, and nobody's quite happy with it, and it's all kind of a mess. And... It is actually kind of wild, like, because you bring up our conversation with Riot uh, and, you know, how mistakes do seem like a mess because they have so much control over their IP and the esports that they have. Whereas Valve, like, a lot of it is, you know, dealing it out to third parties. So maybe it kind of helps hide what's actually going on. 
I j I'll, I'll leave it at, I cannot believe that a real company runs like that. I, I think the whole thing can be summed up as, like, this fascinating experiment in, like, anarcho-capitalism. Uh, the video itself serves as a very densely detailed, richly reported explanation of every weird thing you've ever seen come out of Valve. If you've ever been playing a Valve game, or if you've ever been looking at the Valve Steam Marketplace, which is, of course, the biggest marketplace for games on PC, um, and you've been, like... That seems weird. Why do they have three different ways of adding people as friends? Why do they have a voice chat that nobody uses? If you've ever been using a Valve thing and been in some way confused, the video explains why that happened. Uh, so you should go watch it. It's a very good piece of reporting. All right. Well, up next we have uh, eSports update when it comes to YouTubers getting involved in the space as recently... We had Ludwig join Moist Criticals, uh, Moist Esports. Uh, it's a video of him, Critical, throwing money into a burning trash can, which is the esports classic, I feel like. Yeah, what a, what a way to announce that you're joining an esports org to post a video of yourself burning money. Yeah, congrats on the money. Good stuff over there. Uh, and then former Hearthstone streamer Disguised Toast uh, formed Disguised Esports, which actually qualified for VCT earlier this month. Uh, yeah. So more creators continue to get involved, TJ. Um. I actually worked on a show with Moist Critical last month. Critical, one of the biggest YouTubers in the gaming space, has been for a long time. Kind of fascinating in that he's peripherally in the gaming space. Um, and this is true of Ludwig as well. Um, Ludwig and Moist Critical are both huge streamers, huge YouTubers, but they are huge personalities, and I would say not huge gaming personalities. They're not like Shroud, I would say, is a great example of somebody who's very core to the esports space. Um, Shroud is currently playing on an esports team. Um, he's playing competitively in Valorant. He started as a competitive player. Mm -hmm. um, if he launched an esports team, that would make a million percent sense to me. Um, he's got a ton of money. He could probably afford it. Uh, Moist Critical and Ludwig starting esports teams is a little more peripheral, peripheral. It's a little more interesting to me because their main thrust of their content is not video games. They mostly do, like, reaction stuff and personality-driven stuff. Ludwig does a lot of IRL stuff where he'll stream himself walking around the real world. And then earlier this mm -hmm. month, uh, like last week, he hosted this invitational tournament in Valorant with a ton of streamers where there were two streamer teams led... Shroud actually played on one of the teams. Um, led by Ludwig and Tarek. And Tarek is in the Shroud category. Tarek is a North American Counter-Strike player who's now playing Valorant, and he started playing Counter-Strike competitively, and his success in tournaments helped him launch a streaming career. He's like the normal esports thing. So it's fascinating to me that of the two of them, of Ludwig and Tarek, Ludwig is the one that is now getting in on an esports team that is hosting events, and Tarek is the one who's, I guess, happy to take Ludwig's money, as maybe he'll play for Moist Esports in the near future. Moist Esports does not currently have a Valorant team, to my knowledge. Yeah, I think that earlier on, too, you hit on the big thing for me, which is just money, right? Right now, money in this space is mostly in entertainment and content. Ludwig has been very successful. I mean, I his chess boxing event was, like, one of the more funny yeah, sports events you, I've seen. Could you explain chess boss boxing to the class? Yeah, uh, so I... You play chess, and then you take a break, and then you box for a round, and you go back to playing chess. How does that, this affect the, the boxing and the chess? How do they affect each other? It's a test of mental. Uh, it's something that was real <laughs> big, you know, way back. You got to test both, but 
I, that was a really fun event, and like Ludwig is insanely successful uh, when it comes to content. So, uh, you know, having money, being successful, these guys, a lot of the people doing content, and like him and Disguised Toast both fall in the camp where they're younger, they've come across a lot of money, and they're going to do what they can to diversify their portfolio and what their incomes are like, and it makes sense to still be in this space in some form. Yeah, I think that that's what's going on, basically, is Moist Esports, which is Moist Critical's team, is a way of... Um, Wow, I sorry, I threw my glasses into my tea, and I don't know what kind of sound it made. <laughs> you were right there, coming. That was that was quite the moment. Expanding beyond being an individual creator, right? It's a way for a YouTuber whose entire business is reliant on him putting out video product to become something else. And I think it's kind of interesting in the context of our conversation last week about how esports teams need to do the opposite, right? Like, the problem that esports teams have is that they are esports teams who have no content and no alternate business. I almost kind of wonder if these YouTuber-led teams are going to become, like, successful in the media arm of the business and very good at marketing their players. Um, and one thing I would flag on that is the disguised esports thing, which is disguised toast. A uh, little bit different, a mm -hmm. little more endemic to esports, started as a Hearthstone player way back. Yep. Um, with Hearthstone Esports was proportionally a huge chunk of esports. But he launched a Valorant team, which is very different from Hearthstone. Hearthstone, a card game, uh, Disguised Toast, has played every video game on his stream over the years, but very different yep. business. Um, but his Valorant team doing really well and not being pushed as talent. Like, he is not doing a ton of content around Disguised Esports. He is streaming himself, watching their play, he is monetizing on his own channel as like, this is my team, they're doing well, watch me watch them, watch me react to them. But he is not getting a ton of content out of the players on the team themselves. Okay. Yeah, I I mean, I, I think that, again, a lot of the money in esports is in content. And we've seen teams like Sentinels, they built a good Valorant team, but also a lot of that was based on like how much influence players had going into it. I think that... You know, Lubbock, if he has a smart approach on how to brand those players, maybe he has a re really unique take on it and uh, could be very valuable. I think that 100 Thieves, that's been the most successful org that we've kind of had uh, come up uh, in, in the last five years. And a lot of that is because they w did find ways to diversify their income that wasn't just esports. Uh, so I, I think that orgs need to be well-rounded if they want to make it in this space, uh, because unfortunately, if you're only in one vertical, you will not make it. Uh, and hopefully Ludwig realizes that and can build something successful. Uh, and hey, maybe the different background that him and Toast have could really help. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe something to keep an eye on. As a lot of YouTubers right now are starting businesses, I wonder if it's, you know, the, the sign of the oncoming recession. A lot of YouTubers suddenly getting very concerned about their portfolio. And I wonder if we'll see more of that going into esports, more of that maybe becoming another way that you can run a sustainable esports business. We talked about Comcast. It makes sense for Comcast to own an esports team because it sells Comcast. It makes sense for Disguised Toast to run an esports team because it sells his YouTube videos. Um, so, fascinating. Equally fascinating business news. Uh, well, we have kind of two stories in the same category here. The category being Activision Blizzard screws their partners. Hmm. Um... Let's start with the Netty story, which is um, Activision Blizzard, who make several of the most popular games in the world, several of the most popular esports games in the world, those being StarCraft, Heroes of the Storm, and Overwatch. Um, 
and Overwatch being the most important of those because it's the only one they haven't actively tried to shut down, um, is currently in a weird state of limbo. They had a some kind of breakdown, and this is, as with all business deals, we're having to assemble this from reporting, so I'm going to give a shout-out to um, Ash Parrish at The Verge, who did some very good reporting on this. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. Blizzard seems to have gone to NetEase, who are their publishing partner in China, and for games to be released in China, they need a local partner. Mm-hmm. Because, essentially, the way it works is there are a limited number of licenses for international products to operate, they straight up do not offer them if you do not have a local partner who is making some kind of money, who is some kind of business involved. So Blizzard and NetEase were coming up on the end of their contract this year, and Blizzard seems to have gone shopping. Um, NetEase, a very big publisher, they put out a lot of very popular multiplayer games, both in China and outside of China. Um, but somehow or other... Blizzard decided that they wanted a better deal than what either NetEase was asking for for renewal or what they were already getting. And they didn't find it. And then by the time it came up to go time, by the time the contract was ending, they went back to NetEase and said, hey, so about that screw you, we'll get a better deal somewhere else thing, can you do a six-month extension? To which NetEase said no. And now you can't play Overwatch in China. That is one way to uh, mismanage your game. Yeah. Just a kind of disastrous, I think, result for everyone involved, but also, I think, a spectacular mismanagement for Blizzard. Because I, I can imagine NetEase asking for a lot of money. And I can see how you're at Blizzard and you're like, why should they get 45% of the money made yeah. on whatever? They're not even making the game. Yeah. But at the same and very important time, they they are the reason you're making money in China. And you, if you're going to tell them to screw off, you better have a better deal somewhere else. Now, TJ, this is where I get to be kind of fun and put on my conspiracy hat real quick. Okay. Uh, you know, Tencent, that they make Riot Games and League of Legends, they're a Chinese-owned company. So, mm-hmm. you know, China, LOL's uh, population in China is massive. League of Legends uh, so, you know, and Overwatch. Overwatch, a huge yeah. percentage of their player base is in China by most reports. So, you know, j- just maybe, you know, throw on the conspiracy hat. Who, who knows what's going on there? You can't play Activision Blizzard games now in China anymore. Everyone's going to play League. Yeah, and so NetEase, to be clear, is a separate company from <laughs> Tencent. So I think, they're, I think they're probably pretty upset about losing the license to run Activision Blizzard games against uh, Tencent in the country. Like World of Warcraft, also very popular. Can't play that in China anymore. But weirdly, Diablo Immortal, I believe is the name of that mobile game, mm-hmm. which is mobile a mobile version of their very popular hack-and-slash loot game, Diablo. Um, they co-developed that with NetEase. That game's still going. So whatever mm-hmm. partnership they made, they were on very good terms when they made that partnership. And it's still going, but the relationship with Blizzard went so bad that they they had a statue of like a a monster in World of Warcraft in the park outside their headquarters Mm -hmm. and NetEase actually live streamed themselves disassembling it. Yep. Yep. (laughs) That is petty. That's a petty war right there. (laughs) It's wild how games are published in other countries because this is like pretty common. Like like this has happened for other games as well where you have to publish it through a company that's based in that country. 
uh and it, it has a major impact like this isn't the first time that something like this has happened i know that a uh, league had an issue with the garena uh they called them the garena servers for like the Ty taiwanese uh region like they had yeah. to publish it through a company and that led to you know some complications here and there uh before riot finally published their own client yeah that that, that was a little different um because that was just a local partner because a local partner would know how to publish in a very complicated region, right? Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia is a very weird and difficult region to publish in if you're an American company. So it makes a ton of sense to have a local partner. And I suspect that would be the case. Like, I suspect that in a world in which there wasn't government regulation, you would probably still want somebody who spoke Chinese running the account for the entirety of China. You would probably still want pretty massive Chinese subsidiary publishing Blizzard games if you were Blizzard Entertainment. Um, so they, like, you need people who are local, you need some kind of partners in a country like China in order to effectively publish games there. But, it, but Blizzard do not have it. Caught up in that, four Overwatch League teams, four of the best Overwatch League teams, we're going to talk a little bit later about the Overwatch World Cup. They're having to like yep. make special provisions for the Overwatch World Cup because they're not. You can't have Overwatch players from China, but China is the second best Overwatch region. They have some of the best players in the world, so I I don't know what's going on there. I mean, I I don't know if the esports broadcasts are going to continue. The Overwatch League coming up soon. I don't know if they're going to broadcast the esport in the region. Presumably, those are separate contracts. Just an astonishing state of affairs for Blizzard, and let me tell you, it is going to be very difficult for them to negotiate now. Yeah. If you thought you were getting a bad deal from Denny's before, when your games aren't legal in the territory and you desperately need someone, anyone, to pick them up and publish them, I don't think you'll have a stronger negotiating position than you did previously. And this gets interesting uh, because the next topic is the Overwatch League teams start their collective bargaining process against the league, uh, as reported by Jacob Wolf. And I have a feeling that, you know, if, if a couple of your teams in the league just cannot play or participate anymore, that's not going to help your collective bargaining process. Yeah. I, I do wonder. Um, this is a great write-up by, by Jacob Wolf. Formerly Jacob Wolf of ESPN Esports, now yep. of his own Substack, uh, Jacob Wolf dot report to give the full also, shout out. Also, his startup overcome. Got a startup. Overcome, well. I think, is right. Yeah, yes. I think it's overcome. Yeah, uh, but it's not. It, I don't think they're putting out content. But yeah, he he is doing a ton of cool media stuff. Podcast. It's all right. Um, uh, yeah. So he put out a great little bit of reporting that essentially broke the story that almost all of the Western teams from the sound, from the way the article reads, are engaged in collective bargaining against mm -hmm. the league, against mm -hmm. um, Overwatch League. And it, it gets into some of the financials, which I found fascinating. Every team is in debt to the Overwatch League. They had to pay an astonishing amount of money in order to get in. Mm -hmm. um, the viewership for Overwatch League is doing a little bit better now, but for most of last year and the year before was in like 20K. Like, not good viewership. And part of that is the YouTube contract with Activision Blizzard is no more. So all the games are back on Switch. Which is why which is why the viewership's doing a little bit better. But let yeah. me tell you, the revenue's not doing a little bit better now that YouTube isn't paying the money. There's just some fascinating details from the article. Um, Misfits Gaming CEO, um, who operate the Florida Mayhem, said that, quote, 
They certainly pitched us that the growth of these leagues would be meteoric, and we all drank the Kool-Aid. What has happened is the growth is has not materialized as fast as we hoped. Um, kind of fascinating to hear misfits of all organizations saying that, because I think of them as an endemic organization. I think of mm -hmm. misfits as an esports org that has people who've been around the industry. Mm -hmm. And I remember when Overwatch League was being pitched, when the Kool-Aid was being handed out, pretty much everyone in esports being pretty accurate about the league's state. Like, it's a good product. I think a lot of very talented people work on it, and it deserves yeah. solid esports viewership. But they were not pitching solid esports viewership. They were pitching very unreasonable numbers. And to hear that the people, people in charge of endemic esports companies like Misfits feel swindled by that is very surprising. I'm very surprised that they, they feel taken in like that. I think there are a few really interesting things that could come out of this. Uh, one is that if it is a collective bargaining agreement, then uh, like each side has to come to the table. And let's say the teams, like they ask for the numbers that they were presented and how Blizzard got to those. I'd be really curious how they did come up with the Kool-Aid numbers. Uh, like if, if they were just pitching stuff that was astronomical. Like I want to see the Kool-Aid numbers. Yeah, I, I do as well. I'd, I'd be very curious. I think that's interesting. Also, we kind of touched on it earlier, but how do the YouTube deal affect all this? Like, YouTube did throw an absurd amount of money at Overwatch League, mm -hmm. but it really, like, Twitch still has a monopoly on the streaming space and what is live right now in esports. And as long as that's the case, it feels like you have to have your product on Twitch. And the third, the thing that I'm the most interested about, and for me, what always actually really did kill Overwatch for me, how they balance the game. I think this game had the potential to be so cool. Like, no one liked goat meta, but I thought one of the most oh interesting parts about the game was the fact that you could do stuff like that. You were free to pick six heroes, put them on the same roster, and if you could come up with something that beat the other six heroes, no matter if they were... Like, before they roll-locked everything, I thought that was fascinating. And, like, yeah. what made this game so interesting and so great? And Blizzard pretty much said, we can't balance this crap, so we're going to fix it. Like, we're just going to start banning heroes and locking in roles. And that, for me, is when Overwatch just took a massive step downhill. Because they pretty much gave up on balancing what was a very unique and cool part about this game. And I'm very curious if any orgs or, like, the collective bargaining agreement will actually argue to Activision Blizzard, like, hey, how you handled and changed this game behind the scenes actually took its kneecaps away. Yeah, so so Goat Meta is, is fascinating. Um, basically, a amateur organization named the GOATs, greatest of all times, uh, was playing in the British Regional League, and they figured out that there were, you know, there was nothing in the rules that said you couldn't run six tanks. Yeah. And they ran six of the, like, very beefy, beefiest characters in the game that none of them did any damage on their own, but when they were all together, you couldn't kill them. Mm -hmm. And they would just roll over people. Mm -hmm. And what happened is everyone went, well, hang on, that's true. And started playing it. Very quickly, it became the meta for the entire league. And like you say, rather than do what uh, Riot Games or Counter-Strike uh, Counter developers Valve would do to balance out uh, a meta like that, which is tweak the numbers, make it so that eventually these characters just become less powerful and the meta shifts away from them. They essentially said, no, you can't do that. They instituted at the game level a rule that said... There should be a certain number of tank players and a certain number of AD carry players. And uh, uh, you're not alone here, Cubby. A lot of Overwatch players really hate that. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, I think it is a very interesting question. Major League Baseball doesn't have this problem, crossing my fingers as they talk about very dumb rule changes, but Major League Baseball doesn't have the problem that, like, the nature of the game shifts year on year. Right. Yeah, I I think that it, it that those are legitimate things that I would bring to the table if I were the orgs, because, I mean, growing up and watching Overwatch League kind of go through their emotions, I really feel like uh, those were a couple of big decisions that were made that I think really hurt the growth of the game and the potential for it as an eSport, and why they had to make Overwatch 2, uh, the Electric Boogaloo remake with one last player. Um, some numbers from reporting by the Houston Chronicle with the COO of Houston Outlaws. Um, they say that the team pays players $200,000 a year in salary. So that's probably, I, I don't know the exact numbers, Houston Outlaws has a shifting roster. So they probably have like 10 players on salary, somewhere like 8, 10, somewhere in that range. And despite that, they are earning $1.4 million in revenue and operating at a loss. And every single number in that list is fascinating to me. You've been on the coaching side. Does that line up with what you'd expect? Yeah, I think the like reported out average salary in LCS, the most recent one, was about 300 k uh, per player. So that was like the average. The coaches don't get paid as much, too. So players always are going to cost more. Uh, this, this does just about like add up and I'm not as ingrained in the Overwatch League space as that's not the game that's my job to cover. And I think it's fun to watch sometimes, but I don't know like how much mileage teams get out of their content. Uh, again, I think Overwatch League as a product, especially when it started, did a lot of really cool things in esports. Uh, I really did like the product when like in the first couple of seasons, I really did enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not sure like how much mileage teams are getting out of this. And obviously, if you're making 1.4 million revenue and still operating at a loss, that does yeah, suck. Is that number surprising to you? No, they made all the teams like build like home stands. You know, they had like all like figure out like their own stadium. That was part of the league. But that's, I, but that's I know, hell expensive. Not to mention like the the 30 mil buy-in. But I know a lot of teams that are not earning 1.4 million in revenue. There are a lot of esports teams that do not have that much cash going in. Yeah, so that that is true. Good problem in that case. <laughs> well, apparently not. The not making money part not great. Revenue number great. You, you can you can work with that. So they're um, suing Activision Blizzard to gain some relief from the debt that they owe Activision Blizzard, which seems to mostly be the buy-in. It mm -hmm. seems like the like massive buy-in costs were promised over a series of years. Um, and through various cuts, the, the like $40 million buy-ins that we heard may have been much smaller because they've been relieved several times already and they're suing to get most of the remainder also eliminated from the books. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of interesting. Overwatch League continuing to struggle. One last note on that. I remember like the bidding war between YouTube and Twitch for the Overwatch League rights was kicked off by the fact that in the opening weeks of that first season, the Overwatch League was broadcasting on their own website. They bought MLG, Major League Gaming, who yep. were a massive uh, tournament operator and had their own website. And they said, we're going to broadcast the league on overwatchleague.com unless somebody pays up. And they were able to get pretty good viewership. So, chain of fascinating things. One, that gave them a ton of negotiating power. Two, they weren't able to drive that viewership between platforms. 
like we talked about last week, they're only getting 20,000 viewers on YouTube. Sure, maybe YouTube makes discovery hard, but you would hope if you're operating a league of this scale that the number of viewers you're relying on to discover your product each week are pretty low. You should have people that are tuning in because it's the Overwatch League and they're following it. And they're not getting that anymore. They were when they were operating on OverwatchLeague.com. Um, three, nobody's paying them for ad space anymore. Is there a world in which they go back to OverwatchLeague.com? Or do they just try to get viewership numbers by broadcasting everywhere? Good question. I think at this point, like since you have the week running, uh, and I mean, I don't see contracts like that happening. I, I really don't see exclusive contracts like that happening in esports. I think they're forced to stream wherever. If they have oh. their own website, they could make more, cut out the middleman, but they still have to put it elsewhere. Twitch pays LCS. We know that. Twitch pays for League of Legends content to air on their site. Yeah, but it still airs elsewhere. Which is which is a good deal. <laughs> yeah, so but but that came knows? that came from a similar place. Is that League of Legends drew a huge percentage or drove a huge percentage of the viewership over to LeagueofLegends.com, yeah. right? They said you've got to watch on LeagueofLegends.com to get these exclusive in-game rewards, and that meant that they could push it wherever they wanted to. So they kind of had a loaded gun pointed at the heads of Twitch and YouTube. Yeah, I, I think that still is a like I think Overwatch League should do that. I think that if I am a game developer, that's probably best practice for my game in-game rewards and try and get a deal but no, no deal will be as big as the original youtube deal that was like what 250 mil i think it was massive yeah so the absolute state of overwatch uh, a conversation there will continue we'll talk about the world cup later on for now though let's take our first break and then we can come back we can talk about fifa we can talk about the washington post uh may it rest in peace and everything else That's my hand signal. We're back. Uh, you know who's not back? Who? The Washington Post. Oh. The Washington Post had a great gaming vertical, a great section called Launcher, run by some of the most experienced journalists in video games, and it showed they did some absolutely incredible uh, reporting. And Launcher did a ton of critical coverage on the Overwatch League around its launch. Um, which was very exciting to me because a lot of the enthusiast press was very vulnerable to the hype and a lot of the mainstream press didn't have the experience to do actual reporting on the overwatch league so they were both the enthusiast and the mainstream press were kind of just eating the overwatch league hype train hook line and sinker and the washington post through launcher did a ton of really good reporting as the overwatch league was coming out and launching about hey these numbers don't make a ton of sense if you ask people who know um so it's a real shame to see those jobs go away it's also come amid kind of a wave of gaming and tech journalism shutting down. Earlier this month, um, IGN cut jobs, Polygon cut jobs, Fanbyte mm. uh, and Gamebyte, which was their gaming subbrand, closed entirely. Game Informer shed jobs. Uh, Future shut down entirely. Input, which did some really good reporting on Venn. They did like the quintessential expose on Venn. They did some incredible esports reporting, shut down entirely. Um, Vice, other board, shed a ton of their employees. That's their tech site that's done some great gaming journalism. Um, mm -hmm. G4, of course, closed. GameSpot and Giant Bomb both cut huge numbers of their employees in the last week. So just 
massive cuts across the entire games industry. And I, as somebody who writes this podcast, who writes my own newsletter at esportstj.com, have noticed that it's becoming harder and harder to get good reporting. It's, it's harder and harder to source stories. Like, even when I'm reading news casually, I like to have multiple sources on anything I'm reading. Yeah. I, especially if I'm publishing something or talking about something, I want multiple takes. And that's just gotten impossible in both games and esports for most things. I it, it kind of makes me sad in the way. Like when I first got into esports, it was like 2013, 2014, and there were a lot of people that wrote great articles back then. Uh like Kelsey Moser, Emily Rand for the Eagle Legends. Uh Gold Pretend was a website that I frequented and read a lot of the stuff on there. Uh I think that part of this is that content is just changed. Uh everything is now like clippable. It's all about you know, what influencers are reacting to what clips and clipping that. That's how down the rabbit hole we've gotten to short-form content. And I think that, you know, uh, some of these verticals didn't keep up or transition to that. Uh, also, I think I have my own opinions on that. Like, I don't think that short-form content is very healthy for young people. Like, I don't love what, like, TikTok's encouraging. Uh, I'm a TikTok all day. I'm a young person. Yeah, I, I, so I, I'm kind of a boomer uh, in like my mindset here. Uh, but you know, I, obviously, like being a digital marketer before this, like, I kind of get the lens. Uh, I think though that you're kind of hitting on something that I also find very interesting, which is like, where have the investigative journalists gone in these sports? I mean, they've lost their jobs. Is what's happened. Um... Right, but I know like from so this was an issue like we had in the league space that I was somewhat vocal about because. Uh, we, the one investigative journalist that was covering stuff in league was, uh, it was Richard Lewis and then Jacob Wolf. We really needed an investigative journalist back then. Cause stuff like a team holding a player, uh, in his mom's house, like ransom, like that happened. And Jacob or, um, Richard Lewis, like brought Mike to that and really helped that Recently, player. We had, it kind of came out on Twitter, but we had a very similar evocative situation to that where, as I, I can put the newsletter where I put the put all the stories together but like mm-hmm. i i don't have a better source than my newsletter because i had to like put the stories together from different twitter threads mm-hmm. um but one of the best amateur players had his coach lie to lcs teams lie to professional teams and say he wasn't on the market so that he could keep him at the amateur level and nobody knew he was doing this until the player was like hey why has nobody offered me a gig yeah that's that's not that's not great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, we actually, it's still a young enough space where we need investigative journalists. Like, it, it's something that can really, you know, help the space still. And I, I think that no one gets paid enough, and the only successful journalism that's happened in the space is where, uh, you know, you go to the orgs, say, hey, uh, leak your news to me, and I will get it out properly on my channels uh, because yeah. I have this many followers, and then they can't break that agreement or else they lose their business. And I think that's a really tough spot about how things are designed right now. The biggest esports news sites right now are all very cozy with the teams and with the publishers. Yeah. And I was I was spoke earlier about how the enthusiast press was very vulnerable to Activision Blizzard's stuff. That's because everyone who works there is a fan of Activision Blizzard, maybe doesn't have a traditional education in journalism. And Activision Blizzard comes to them and says, hey, you want these Overwatch League plushies? And they go, yeah, which is understandable, but means that, that 
your Travis Gaffords of the world aren't going to challenge the companies that control whether or not they have a career. They're not yeah. going to go to League of Legends publisher Riot Games or Overwatch publisher Activision Blizzard and make them uncomfortable and ask them hard questions because they can't, because that's that's their job. Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly leaves it open to abuse, certainly leave, makes it much easier for uh, publishers and teams and broadcasters to give players and uh, each other and viewers and broadcasters in terms of actual on-camera talent much worse deals because they don't have to fear fan backlash. They don't have to worry about the public becoming aware of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I Again, I, I think it's in a really tough spot right now. And I, I wish this was something that was different about the space, but just given how content's consumed and where things are going, well, that's not the case. I will I will argue with you here. Um, and this was noted as well. Um, Jason Schreier, who currently heads up the Bloomberg gaming news site, Jason Schreier, a long tenured, he was at Kotaku. He like made the full journey. He was one of the best reporters at Kotaku, um, another site that's had job layoffs recently. Mm -hmm. um, he was at Kotaku. He now leads the Bloomberg team, um, and they do incredible reporting. And he noted all of these sites are profitable. Every single one of them that I talked about was making money. The launcher, we, we, we don't know because it's a subdivision of the Washington Post, but launcher by all visible metrics was growing. Um, the Washington Post itself, one of the only profitable newspapers in the world. And it's not like the Washington Post is saving money. They launched a wave of layoffs and then they launched some new verticals. They launched a health and wellness vertical and hired some opinion colonists. So they, it wasn't, oh, we're shutting down because we're worried about saving money. It was, we're shifting resources away from games to something else. So I don't know. There's there's something going on there that isn't, I think, as simple as people aren't reading the news anymore. And I could not tell you what it is. I think it's some mix of what's happening in technology, um, the venture capital companies that own a lot of these sites having very misaligned expectations with journalism. I don't know what's going on. There's there's something broken about the way that internet media is operating. And the most internet of media is paying the price. Um, that being games and tech reporting. I think that a lot of companies view the economy right now as an oncoming recession. And this is one of the verticals they feel like they can cut. And yep. that's the sad reality. Uh, it'll become a little bit harder, as always, for us to source stories here. Um, support the stuff that's still going. I think people make games who we shouted out earlier for their coverage of Valve. It's a whole yep. bunch of people who work, used to work for Game Informer. They now entirely viewer-supported run a YouTube channel that is all incredible investigative journalism. It's really good. Um, they did an expose earlier uh, this year about, or earlier last year, I guess, God time flies, um, about Valve's skin economy, uh, the way that Counter-Strike and many Counter-Strike tournaments and many Counter-Strike esports teams have this weird relationship with gambling and very predatory gambling. Um, very good, very, very, very good journalism. So um, I'm glad that stuff exists. I hope it stops going away. Speaking of things that we hope doesn't go away. Ah, yes. The Overwatch World Cup is back, baby. Uh, oh. And yeah, uh, well, 
not all of it. You know, China can't play, but they're going to be in later, hopefully. Uh, but it's back. And honestly, it's one of the best events that I think Overwatch League has done. And it's really excited that, really exciting that they're doing it again. I think of this in many ways as like a Hail Mary, you know, in the like traditional, not in the business sense of the word, in the traditional football, there's two seconds on the clock, the teams are suing, we can't run our products in China, we gotta throw a football as far down the field as we can and hope somebody is there to catch. I think of the Overwatch World Cup, which is the format they ran at the like the peak of their relevance to the internet, right before the Overwatch League launched as the test case for how successful the eSport yeah. could be, uh, that really hit with audiences that had a ton of viewership on the Overwatch League site that gave them negotiating power with Twitch. If they are able to recapture any of that magic, there is a future for the League. If this shows up and nobody watches, if this shows up and the viewership is lower than top-tier events in Counter-Strike and League of Legends, they will have a very tough case to make going forward. I agree, but I, I think that I, I do love this event. It's something that Riot tried to copy for League with MSI. I think they kind of, they're like, let's invite one team from every region, and it was bad. But I, I think this format, like outside of the season, is just super fun. You really can't go wrong. It in as you mentioned, like when they did this, they were launching their arena as well. So like it was the arena unveil. It was the like World Cup before Overwatch League started. So like you got all these players that like had won a bunch of events, like, we're going to get picked up by the franchise teams. That arena playing. doesn't exist anymore. I don't know if you know that. They, they showed yeah. that arena. Yeah, but it was really cool. Uh, and they had, like, the Lowell Park design where the players sat in a circle in the middle, which I just love. Um, but, yeah, I hope that for Overwatch, this uh, does really well. And yep. also, I will probably tune in because this is very fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an eye on it. I'm going to... Yeah. I'm going to definitely look at what the numbers are. We can talk about that. I think we get end-of-month numbers from esports charts next week. Yeah. Um, so we we should go through and just look at what makes the biggest dent, and I believe next month we will have the launch of the Overwatch World Cup, and we kind of compare numbers. Because um, I, I do really believe that it's a Hail Mary. I do really believe that if this shows up and it gets you know middling viewership on Twitch then it becomes very difficult to justify to teams why they're paying more than any other esports teams are for participation in a league that cannot draw tier one viewership to their tier one flagship products. And it becomes very difficult to justify to players why they should continue to play in that game when its viewership is obviously declining. And it becomes even more difficult to negotiate with potential broadcast partners because if you're hoping for another stimulus check from YouTube, if you're hoping for an injection of cash from Twitch, You've got to demonstrate that you can pull viewership on either of those platforms. Yeah, agree. Uh, so, Overwatch World Cup coming up soon. Um, China, as you said, can't run local qualifiers because the game is not running in China. Uh, so the Chinese team, which finished second last year, in some form, or last time they ran it, which was 2019, um, in some form will be direct invited to the group stage. So, something will happen there. Um... Speaking of speaking of numbers, that's my segue. I was looking at the esports viewership numbers for this month, kind of getting a preview of that. And one of the things I like about that is I'll spot names that I don't expect. Um, 
right now the most viewed esports league in the world by a significant margin is the LCK. We'll talk about that. That's our match of the week is from the LCK. So we'll we'll get into that uh, at mm-hmm. the very end. But pretty high up the charts, the FIFA EA Sports Cup, which set a kind of new bar for sim sports viewership. Very fancy studio setup running out of London. Um, averaged 62,000 concurrent viewers at a 120,000 concurrent viewer peak uh, over the course of the entire event. Not bad numbers for a regional qualifier for the world final, which is what this is, and a sport that isn't traditionally considered an esport. So uh, I guess it's uh, I guess it's esport or not esport time again, Cubby. We did it with Marvel Snap last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, FIFA, the sim sport, the football game? Really? All right. So sports games, will they have a ceiling for how far they can go as esports because I feel like there are still so many people that are just going to be like, why am I watching people play, you know, football or soccer uh, versus, you know, I, I can just watch the sport. Uh, we'll have a ceiling. With that said... These games have massive player bases. And as these games have somewhat evolved, something they've actually really done for their eSport is they have the ultimate teams. So people like have to pretty much pay money and grind to get the best ultimate teams to then compete on the ladder. Uh, this is this is their most successful game mode where they've successfully made every soccer player in the world a microtransaction that you can unlock in a loot box. Yes, and they're like, like a tier different three Ronaldo tiers. Like a loot box. <laughs> yeah, they're like also like different years you can get. Like you can be yep. playing with like, uh, you know, Messi from like 2010. Like that could ah, be someone. Uh, 2011 on your team. Messi, way better. Yeah, so <laughs> like it is something where people like have to figure out the meta in a way and like kind of build their team strategically. Uh, but this is something like we've seen before. Like I remember growing up, they used to have Madden finals. Like they had a Madden tournament on ESPN where everyone would be like on a team. So like someone would just play as the New York Giants for like the entire Madden tournament. And the finals would be on the big board for Times Square. And that was on cable television. So I, I think Presumably like ESPN four, right? Like No, it was ESPN two. Wow. Yeah. So here's, like, here's again, the storm that like got ESPN three. I know. Uh, they did well for Madden. Uh again I think that this is the ultimate rule for esports as always. Your community deems if your game is an esport or not. And if the community is willing to support it, hell, like, why not have big tournaments? You know, like, good for them. Uh, more power to them. Uh, okay. I think it's capped. I don't think that it can ever compete with, like, the esports that we have. But it doesn't mean it can't get views and make money and, you know, make a livelihood for some of these players. I hear you. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> like, I, I hear you. FIFA is one of the most popular games in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll soon be called EA Soccer Game or something like dumb like that because they're losing the FIFA license, so we'll see uh, what that affects. But it is one of the most popular games in the world, and there is certainly skill in it. But I, an esports viewer, an avid esports fan, tuned into that broadcast, and I heard the commentators commentating the game like it was a real soccer game. Like they were, they were calling out the names of the soccer players, not of the FIFA players. So it's a three v three game, in actuality, and there are three players on each team who are controlling a full squad of actual real life soccer players. And rather than calling 
player name in the real world is controlling this player and he's passing it down the field and he's going to pass it to the other player on his team who's controlling this player rather than like calling the game as it's happening at the real world level they were calling it like it was a real soccer match and they were like oh ronaldo breaks down the field and he's driving it forward for a shot on the goal and i'm like no he's not that's not Ronaldo. That's a digital representation of Ronaldo being controlled by somebody. If I wanted to watch Ronaldo play, I could do a lot better than this. Yeah. I I, I think, I mean, that's an easy change to the broadcast, though. I, again, it, it, there is a barrier. Like, there is a ceiling. But, uh, like, we, I don't play FIFA. Like, if, if you play the game, like, you know the grind to get the ultimate team. You get drops from watching as well. You can support it in the game client. You could get a lot of people to tune in. I mean, they did. They drove some viewership. Um, yep. They have more viewership than the Overwatch League last season um, in average CCV. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, the power of Twitch. Uh, all right. One uh, they more. Were actually, mostly on YouTube for what it's worth. Oh, not bad. Um, yeah. All right. One more topic. It is the game of the week, TJ. Uh, from a league this week that I love, uh, had the privilege Let's of go, appearing baby. on this last summer. It would be the LCK, and we're trying to pick games of the week where. No matter what esport you know or follow, because you probably don't follow all of them, this is just a game that we feel like you can enjoy as a casual fan. And this game was freaking wild, as it was uh, Live Sandbox versus KT. In the, uh, in the Korean League of Legends League. So yes. this is the most popular League of Legends League in the world in Korea. It's been called a national sport. I think that's a fair, like a lot of times people are like, yeah. Call of Duty is a national sport in America. No, it's not. In Korea, it has aired on traditional television. I don't know if it still does, um, but it is a broadcast product that people around the country tune into. So it's incredibly yeah. popular locally. The international broadcast is very good. Um, the games are very good. They've produced mm -hmm. a ton of world champions. Mm-hmm. And this game was nuts, so I'll, I'll let you get into it a bit. I, I think this is, like, the way that I phrase it is that historically this has been the most competitive league in the world, given the 10 teams and the quality of the 10 teams that compete in it. Yeah. Uh, but this game, honestly, it was pretty... It was kind of sad, but also just very funny, uh, as really the highlights to this game were that three times in a row, uh, Willer, the jungler for Live Sandbox... Uh, he stole the major objective from KT. And if you're a KT fan, there's just this running joke in the LCK where it is like, don't have too much faith in KT because they will hurt you. The razor cakes, it's something like from NFL sports teams. It's like the start of every season. Someone gives you a cake and you know there's razors in it, but you still like want the cake because like you believe in your team. You believe that it's going to be good. That is KT because you always get hit by the razor in the end. And that is what happened in this game. And Atlas and Wolf are brilliant at their job. Those and are the commentators. Yeah, they did such just a hilarious job of highlighting the last steal from Willer. Like, you can't help but laugh, but also just feel so sad for KT as this game was just yoinked out from under them off of three major objective steals. Yeah, let's, let's play the third clip. So to give you some context for anyone listening at home, uh, the way League of Legends works is these giant monsters spawn on the map, and whichever team kills the monster gets a uh, huge reward in Big terms buff. of actual uh, gameplay, right? It makes it much easier to win the game and kill the other team. So there's a fight that happens between the two teams around the monster. Three times this game, Sandbox won the real 
person fight. They did a very good job in positioning and controlling that part of the map. They turn to kill the monster, and in the very last moment, Willer slides over the wall and steals away their objective. Just gets the very last hit on the monster, yoinking away the buff, yoinking away the benefits, and keeping the game going. Um, and all three times, actually, had the objective take gone as intended, the game would have probably been over. Oh, for sure. This is Elder. Like, if you get Elder, you, you, you should win the game. So three times in a row, there's like a 0.05% chance that this game keeps going and Willer pulls it off. Comes in, chains of corruption are uh, going to connect as Lahan's getting taken down very, very low. Willa gets on in there and they need to oh. again. <laughs> are you kidding me, KT? Why? Why? How did this happen again? Repel, he does it out of repel. You can just hold the damage. He can't do anything while he's in repel. How did that happen? Triple. I'm so, I just, I'm baffled. I'm completely baffled, Wolf. It's Emperor's Divide. Aiming does have a stopwatch, but guys, he's dead. How did KT? I just love the, the why. Like, the nose and the whys. It's <laughs> so funny. And it, it honestly just, what I love about the LCK Good and broadcast. the broadcast. It is great suckers. broadcasting. We are both casters. We are suckers for good broadcasting. And that will, I think, like, as part of the reason we chose Game of the Week last week, I think it will always be one of the things that decides what Game of the Week is. That's good broadcasting. That's one of the best broadcast teams in the world. Yeah. And, oh, my God, did they deliver on that moment. I, it, it's, it's just unbelievable. Like, you just feel it. Like, <laughs> it's so tragic. And the fact it's happening to KT, like, this is just the KT story for LCK. Like, they've always had good and competitive teams and have just tragically lost so many times. Uh, yeah. And yeah, this is, uh, you can just really feel the emotion. And it like, also, even if you don't know KT or the league, you can just feel the pain and also the humor behind it as well. Uh, so good job from Atlas and Wolf, as always. Uh, and yeah, That's, that was very, very funny. Uh, about 30 minutes of your life that will be well spent. Link will be in the show notes. It's a dumb game. It's so, it's, but yes. It'll be a great time. Uh, yeah. Covey, the coach, very upset. Me, the viewer, the broadcaster, <laughs> I'm here with the popcorn. I'm having a great time. Um, I want to I wanna briefly acknowledge, like, the LCK is the viewership leader in the world right now. This is the most viewed esports production. And there aren't very many esports shows on right now, but what is on is the rest of uh, League of Legends. The rest of the League of Legends regions are going. Nothing is doing better than the LCK or in terms of trackable viewership. Um, so that means I'm discounting China. Right. Um, but So the LPL probably doing better. That's the Chinese League of Legends League. The LPL probably doing better, but all their numbers are on Chinese websites, which are notoriously hard to get data from. Mm -hmm. In terms of actual viewership that we could track, LCK, the most viewed league in the world. And I find that fascinating. I think that I, is... I do as well. I, I thought it'd be LPL for sure. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the LPL's Chinese numbers, right? Okay, okay. So we we just we just don't know, um, because yeah, Chinese I think those are like publicly insane. surface viewership. Yeah, um, Chinese websites publicly surface a made up number called like hotness or something, and that's why sometimes, especially in like traditional reporting, you'll get like a mainstream news story on ABC or something, and they're like fifteen billion people tuned in. Because they have, like, an entirely Chinese UI, and they see, like, 15 billion in the bottom corner. They're like, that's how many viewers! <laughs> Interesting. 
Uh, I, I mean, so the LCK, again, like, I had the pleasure of actually being on that show. Um, I had an offer to move to Korea and join the show, which I talked about publicly. Uh, that was a really tough decision for me to make, and ultimately ended up staying in uh, where home is for me in North America. But uh, the hardest part was, you know, knowing how good uh, the team was on the English broadcast, like, not just as broadcasters, but also people behind the scene. And... Being able to like help out there, I really realized why that broadcast has been so beloved, no matter who is on it for so they many years. They do the work. Yeah, because they, they do the work. But also, I think they, like, the, the secret sauce that LCK has always had is they've always kind of captured what I feel like the, the typical esports fan is. And a lot of that is, like, I want to feel like I'm watching these games with someone that, like, is on my couch, like, that I trust and, like isn't necessarily a friend but is someone fun to watch the games with and i feel like no matter who has showed up on that show they've had their own take on what that is for them and their strengths but they've always been able to hit a product that's very approachable lighthearted, and also delivers on moments uh, like that or the very clutch moments that happen at the biggest moments in the lck i i, I always think that's been their unique uh kind of secret sauce over there i think they hit it at a level that other esports broadcasts should study and strive to be yeah, I, I have this thought a lot. Um, a very good comparison I make is nobody likes watching ESPN. Um, I said earlier I wasn't a sports fan. That's because I'm a baseball fan. It's a hard time to be a baseball fan. Uh, but nobody likes when you can't watch the local broadcasters and you have to watch ESPN. And the ESPN commentators try so hard to be professional that they're just uninteresting. A lot of esports is modeled after that hyper-professional, we're real boys, this is real sports, you can trust us with your sponsor dollars. And in doing so, absolutely the broadcast loses some of the spark that makes people actually want to watch. And I would also note, no viewership in the world has produced, or no product, no esports product in the world has produced as many stories like the one you told about Sandbox every season about how KC always want to do this, and they always fall just barely short, and KC fans know that at the end of this season there's going to be a razor in the cake. No league in the world has produced as many player and team stories and as many long-running narratives as the LCK. Mm -hmm. It's the yeah. blueprint. When Riot Games started launching esports, where did they come from? They came from the LCK. They came from the leagues there. Um, Wolf, who you heard on that broadcast, we were talking about the Overwatch League earlier. The mm -hmm. Overwatch League mm -hmm. is possible because of the broadcast that that same studio that built the LCK built for Overwatch. They ran uh, the Africa TV Invitationals for the Overwatch League, and or for Overwatch, and those were the most viewed Overwatch products. They still are considered the high watermark for Overwatch competitive by many hardcore fans. All of the best players in the league come from that uh, Overwatch tournament. All of the best uh, uh, broadcasters were working on that Overwatch tournament. Wolf does not work on Overwatch anymore. He works on League of Legends on the LCK. Um, I think it is... Everyone in the West should maybe stop trying to copy each other and start trying to copy the LCK because it is obvious that that league is doing something right. That league is driving the way... That our products can look. Yeah. 
I, I agree. I, I think they have the secret sauce just figured out, and it's it's a wonderful broadcast to tune into consistently. Yeah. Um, one final note, if we have extra time to kill. I, like, every broadcast in the world looks like that now. Uh, looks like the LCK did, like, two, three years ago. Everyone is chasing this one product, um, and it is one of the few products that makes a genuine cultural impact on the outside world and within esports. I, I, I mean, I think that that's, like, what esports is missing, right? Like, that cultural impact. Yeah. And I think that part of it, like, you mentioned uh, cable television, like, in Korea. Like, esports have been on cable TV since StarCraft back in the 90s uh, in South Korea. So I, I think that because of the PC bang culture and... The PC like, bangs are, like, internet cafes, basically. Right. Like internet cafes dedicated to gaming. It's like a cross between a gaming space and a... Right. And there is a real culture there because it kind of brought living room gaming to PC gaming, which just doesn't exist like here in North America or even in like it's not nearly as common in other places. Right. So I, I think that because it has had such an ingrained cultural impact for years, like it's one of the reasons why it's more successful and beloved and why I think the teams are more successful as well. Because like there's just been people that are there for more time in the space. Uh, and I guess something that's like really missing and that it's going to be. Oftentimes, like, culture gap is mentioned. Uh, I think it's something that is really tough to match because, again, they do have, like, 25-plus years of esports just being ingrained into culture and a big part of being social in the community that exists for kids growing up in South Korea. But it is something where, again, if you're a game developer or, like, a business and you're trying to get into this, like, that is what you try to emulate and try to have. Uh, and I'm really curious to uh, really... For any broadcast or any business that looks to close the gap there, I think uh, there there is something there. Yeah, undefeated. There's a there's a clear model that perhaps due to a very American centric worldview, we always think we can do it better. Um, yep. American esports companies don't follow. No. All right. Um, shout outs to the LCK. Shout outs to Atlas. You're my hero. Um, oh, he's so good at this job and the nicest guy. He's so good. I don't know. I've never met him, but he's very good at his job. Also, uh, Wolf, and of course, everyone else there. I, I, I really like Wolf's I, casting. See, I I, I've never talked to on. them, so I don't feel the need to do that. I can just yeah. single out the individual. <laughs> no, I think everyone over there is very good at their job, but they especially Wolf. It's a great moment, and he's criminally slept on as a caster. Yeah, one of the best commentators in the world, if not the best. Really um, enjoy his work. That'll be all. You can find new episodes each week. Uh, at sickesports.com. Did you know we have a name now? Sickesports with a K. Dot com. Um, as well Down with as the, the sickness. Sorry? Down with the sickness. Sorry? It's, Can I get it, you know that, that song? In, in song lyric form? Can you give me the line? No. I, I, my voice what is not capable. Coming? You can't half commit to this. My voice is not capable. You can find new episodes every week at sickesports.com as well as the podcast provider of your choice. You can find me at esportstj.com and you can find Matthew Covey Samuelson on Twitter at CoveyXX. Be safe, be kind to yourself, and get paid what you're worth. <laughs>